My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I'm Shane. I get to be one of the pastors here, about part of our teaching team. In fact, uh, it just occurred to me as of this week that next week will mark one year that I've been a part of the pastoral team here. It's been a, a great year. I appreciate uh, just how welcoming that you've been for me as a, from a, as a congregation. So thank you. As I was thinking about that, it also reminded me that June is the one-year anniversary of another momentum event in my, moment, momentous event in my life. And that was I, last year in June, I experienced for the first time vertigo. Anybody experienced vertigo before? Yes, yeah, nasty stuff. It was so, so strange because it came out of nowhere. I, I found out later that it had some kind of infection in my inner ear. But it came out of nowhere. And it just over the course of about four days, slowly I, the, the, the earth started shifting. You know, first a little bit and then more until our, at the end of the, the fourth day, the, the, the earth was doing this. I mean, it was all over the place. I couldn't stand up without help. I couldn't walk in a straight line, you know, without somebody guiding me. Uh, it got so bad that it provoked my motion sickness. And so I started throwing up. I mean, it was that bad. And the worst of it lasted for about a week. But then it took two months for me to return to some semblance of normality. I found out late, I found out along the way that you actually have to retrain your brain to get used to the idea that the, the earth is actually not moving. That's fascinating to think about because as followers of Jesus, in a lot of ways, we're experiencing something similar culturally. The cultural ground, especially over the last decade, has shifted under our feet through what in this series we're calling cultural identity theft. Pastor James, a couple weeks ago, introduced what he called the new cultural narrative. It's the narrative that, that we live within every day of the week. And so just to make sure, for those of you who weren't with us a couple weeks ago, I just wanted to highlight it one more time. New cultural narrative. Number one thing, you must be true to yourself. That's the driving force. That's your reason for existence. You must be free to live any way you want so that you can be true to yourself. You have to do what makes you happy. That's the fuel, happiness, the pursuit of that. It's the fuel. So then, based on these, no one has the right to tell you what is right and wrong for you. Only you determine your standards of right and wrong. Every day of the week, whether at work or school or in the playgrounds or wherever you are, we're living within this new cultural narrative. Now, this can be disorienting because then we come here on Sunday morning and everything we talk and do around this environment is built on a different foundation. It's the foundation of the biblical narrative, which we could summarize this way. God exists. He designed and created us and the universe and called it good. God's authority supersedes human autonomy. He established moral truths as boundaries for us to live within for our good and for his glory. 
sin has real and has wrecked havoc on all creation. There's nothing in creation that escapes the influence of sin. God did not leave us to the power of sin, but gave us power over sin through the person and work of Jesus. And what happens in this life matters in the next life. In other words, this life is not all there is. In a lot of ways, we can understand this through that lens of vertigo. This is the foundation. And since this is the earth, it doesn't change, doesn't move. And yet we all kind of have this vertigo going where we're all, it looks like it's all moving all around. And in a sense, we need to retrain our brains to understand that, no, the, the earth is level, if you will. But because there's this gulf now between this new cultural narrative and the biblical narrative, whenever we teach on a topic that is a hot topic in our cultural narrative, it's a challenge. Because I know that I have two distinct audiences that I'm speaking to. The first audience is anyone here who has proclaimed Jesus as your Lord. And that is, for those of us who, are de- who, lived, who, that, who declare Jesus as Lord, we are called to repent from the cultural narrative, to turn from it, to turn toward the biblical narrative, what the Bible calls the kingdom of heaven. That's what we're called to do. We're called to obey what the Bible says, even when it goes against our feelings or our desires, because we believe God is good and has our best interests at heart. So anyone who declares Jesus as Lord, that's one audience. There's another audience, and that's those of, that, who do not declare Jesus as Lord. Maybe that's here, you're here today. Maybe you're listening, watching on the video online. Maybe you're listening on by podcast. Now, if that's you, then a couple of things you should know. What I want you to know is that I, I would love for you to hear what the God says through the Bible about what the universe is all about. I would love for you to see the beauty in it, the wisdom in it, and to be drawn toward it. At the same time, I have absolutely no expectation that you are living under the authority of the Bible or even want to live by what it has to say. Now, that's important to know because I have this challenge when it comes to cultural hot topics. And last week and this week, I think we can all agree that this is a cultural hot topic. Because we are talking about the cultural invitation to build our sexual and gender identity on a foundation that has been, you know, that, that's usually described with the acronym LGBTQ. Last week, if you weren't here, we talked about the LGB part of the acronym, which mostly deals with sexuality. Today, we're going to talk about the T and the Q, which mostly deals with gender. When it comes to gender, gender issues have exploded culturally over the last 10 years. What was once considered on the margins is now mainstream. And so just to make sure we're all on the same page and understand what we're talking about, I'm going to just walk through a series of terms that we need to define. So the first one, transgender. This is the T, or is usually the T in the acronym. There are some other words that, 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 that can also be the T words. Transgender, an umbrella term for the various ways in which some people experience incongruence between their biological sex and their gender identity. A transgender person often feels like they're trapped in the wrong body. The next word is queer. Queer is usually, but not always, the Q in the acronym. Queer is a term for people who do not identify or express their gender or sexuality according to common cultural norms. Not everyone who identifies as queer identifies as transgender. Many people simply identify it with it as an aesthetic, you know, a way of presenting themselves to the world. This term, we should know, has a complicated history as a reclaimed slur, and one should exercise caution in using it. It's one of those words where if you're a member of the tribe, if you will, you can use the term, but if you're not a member of the tribe, be careful in using it. That makes sense. The next one, next word, is gender dysphoria. 
Now, gender dysphoria is a fairly new term developed by psychologists to, to try to get at the level of distress that often, but not always, comes with being transgender. Many people who identify as transgender experience gender dysphoria, but some don't. And not everyone who experiences gender dysphoria identifies as transgender. Does that feel kind of squishy? Because it is. Again, we've got to be careful. This is a fluid topic that we're talking about. The next word, the next phrase we need to identify is non-binary gender identity. Non-binary gender identity. This is a gender identity other than male or female, often referred to as gender queer, gender fluid, pangender, gender non-conforming, omnigender, or any other terms that may be coming out because they're coming out rather rapidly. Okay, it's a moving target in terms of the culturally where we're at. And the last one I want to highlight is the gender unicorn. Gender unicorn, especially if you're parents, you need to be aware of this because this is right now the leading means for transmitting these topics culturally. And just so you know what it looks like, we'll just go ahead and show it up here. This is the gender unicorn. It's very kid-friendly on purpose. You notice there's five different aspects that they look to in order for you to form your sense of identity. You have gender identity, gender expression, sex assigned at birth. If you haven't heard that phrase, get used to it because it's not that we are born with a gender. It's that we're assigned a gender at, at birth that may or may not conform to who you really are. Physically attracted to, emotionally attracted to. So notice there's male, female, there's other and, and the idea is you, you take any of these categories, you mush them together, you create your unique identity. That's the idea behind this. Now, some of you right about now are stifling a yawn because, yeah, this is all basic stuff. For the others of you, I just blew your mind. Like it or not, this is our cultural reality. And if we're going to be able to engage in meaningful, loving conversations with our neighbors, we need to understand the culture in which we live. And before I go any further, I want to emphasize, this is about people to love, not as much about issues to argue. About people to love more than issues to argue. And just to highlight that, I want to introduce you to someone named Brandon. Brandon, the story's told in this book called Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy, which is an excellent book. I would highly recommend it if you want to do a deep dive into any of the issues around gender and sexuality. She does an amazing job with it. In her book, in her, sorry, in her chapter on transgender, she tells the story of Brandon, and I, I want to read it. It says, From the time Brandon was an infant, he was quiet, sensitive, compliant. When he was a toddler, his babysitter told his mother, He's too good to be a boy. In preschool, while the boys roughhoused on one side of the room and the girls sat in a circle and talked, Brandon sat with the little girls. He was not interested in playing with guns or trucks. He preferred playing imaginary games with toy animals, acting out complex interpersonal relationships. From an early age, he sensed he was different than most boys. Today, we would call him gender nonconforming. By junior high, Brandon was experiencing painful tension. He felt sharply out of step with the prevailing John Wayne masculinity image, and he still preferred the company of girls. Boys talked about sports and video games. Girls talked about emotions and relationships, you know, the things Brandon cared about. But of course, girls never shared their feelings with him as openly with their girlfriends, so he felt he was neither really a boy nor a girl. No matter where he went, Brandon felt agonizingly out of place, 
I feel the way girls do. I am interested in the things girls are, he told his parents. God should have made me a girl. In high school, his classmates organized a Christian manhood group, but it stressed stereotypical male virtues like leadership and assertiveness. What about men whose character strengths are caring and nurturing? By age 14, Brandon was spending hours scouring the internet for information on sex reassignment surgery. Eventually, however, he concluded it would not give him the results that he wanted. I realized, he said, that surgery would not turn me into a girl. It would not change my genes and chromosomes, he told me. A person is not a computer program that you can delete or redesign from scratch. The last time I talked to Brandon, he had graduated from university with honors and was working at his first job. At the end of our conversation, though, he tapped his chest and said with a shy smile, I'm still a girl on the inside. For some of you here today, I just told your story. You can relate with Brandon because you experienced something similar. And if it isn't your story, as followers of Jesus, we're called to compassion, to empathize, to walk in their shoes as if they were us. And that's what I hope to do on this topic. This is about people to love more than issues to argue. A couple of other terms I need to highlight. They're terms that I'm sure you're more familiar with, and yet their definitions are in flux. Sex is the, is the next term. Now, in this conversation, sex is about biology. In fact, it's often used that way, your biological sex. Now, precisely, more precisely, a person's sex is determined by sexual anatomy, reproductive organs, hormones, and chromosomes. Generally speaking, this is self-evident for most people. Now, I emphasize that because there is a term you may have heard of called intersex. Intersex is often the I that's added on to the acronym, LGBTQI, Now, intersex is a rare chromosomal or anatomical abnormality that has a person be a blend of male and female. It's a very real issue. It is rare, but it is real. And what I need to do for our conversation today is kind of set it over here. We have enough to deal with today. It's a different category, different conversation. So for most people, generally speaking, their sex, their biological sex, is self-evident. The last term is gender. Now, that's what we're here to talk about today. Gender is a challenge, but we need to understand where it came from. So gender was coined and popularized in academic circles in the 1950s as part of the feminist movement, as a way of talking about cultural expression of one's sex. This is where the phrase gender roles came into the cultural conversation, and, and rightly so. It's a good conversation. Up until the 70s, gender was synonymous with sex, In the 1980s, gender began to replace sex in a lot of, especially official conversations, uh, but in the general dialogue as well, because sex can be confusing, because it also means sexual intercourse, and and, and then you end up with things like on forums, you know, where some people were seeing sex, you know, male, female, and they thought it was funny to add another box that said, yes, please, and then check the box. How juvenile, who would do such a thing. I mean, I would never do such a thing, never. I would never, yes, I did that. Anyone else admit to it? So, so gender began replacing sex, to, again, but meant the same thing, male or female. 
And so the three, fir- the three first definitions on here, they interrelated, but that's what gender meant. Until about a decade ago, when the definition of, of gender became much more fluid, flexible. Largely because of this last item. It began to mean an internal sense of self. In other words, it has to do with your identity. So now there's a ton of confusion around this term, which helps explain why Facebook has 71 different gender options. And Tumblr lists 117. It's why in 2017, when a survey in Time magazine asked respondents to offer a term that best fit their gender, they received over 500 unique responses. Somebody's phone's ringing up here. Need, need to get that? That's a little distracting. <laughs> now, for those of us in the room that are, say, older than 30, what I just was sharing about this, I mean, this seems a little crazy-making. And yet, for those who are teens and 20-somethings, non-binary gender options are not only assumed, they're fashionable. And thinking in binary terms like male, female, like even like gay, straight, that's considered old school. Even the term transgender is going out of fashion because it assumes a binary. It assumes that I'm a, I'm a female inside of a male body and I need to transition. That's, that's still a binary. And so it's going out of favor. My friends, this is our new cultural reality. And it's what it's, it, and we see it expressed now in headlines all the time. Like this one last Sunday on NBC News, we see this. Trans dads tell doctors you can be a man and have a baby. And what we have here is a couple. It's a male-to-female transgender person married to a female-to-male transgender person. So dad had the baby. And again, I'll say for some of us, that is highly disorienting. And I just want to emphasize this is our new cultural reality. Now, you may be tempted to blow it off and just say, kind of go, la, 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 I don't want to deal with it. As followers of Jesus, we don't have that choice. We are called to make disciples in our culture as it is, not how we may wish it to be means we need to engage culture. And engaging culture always means two things. I need to understand the culture, and I need to understand what God says through the Bible, and then we're invited into conversation about that, which means I need to learn how to speak the truth gracefully, and, and this may surprise you, I need to be humble enough to be willing to hear truth from culture. We need to be able to, we need to, be able to have the gospel shape and reshape our culture Because we need to repent of ways that we've misunderstood, mischaracterized, and misused the Bible in a way that it has wounded others. May we never forget, my friends, that Jesus' harshest words were given to the religious leaders of the day, you know, the good church-going folk, who who thought they made up their own rules and laws to condemn their culture, thinking they were speaking on behalf of God, but completely missed the heart of God. May we not forget that. So that's our cultural reality. Let's look at what the Bible has to say about this topic of gender. 
And we need to start at the same place we started last week. In fact, I'm going to look at the same two passages, this time through the lens of gender. So we start in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 will give us the design, the creation as God intended it. And the chapter 1 culminates in this famous passage, a well-known passage. For God, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. This comes at the end of the chapter 1 creation narrative that's given to us, you know, from starting from the cosmos and then, and then ends up with human beings. And you see it come at, in a form of complementary pairs. It's poetry that it's written, and you see this cadence to it of complementary pairs. Heaven, earth, light, dark, water above, water below, land, water, sun, moon, and then the animals are created, male and female, and then it culminates, you know, kind of the pinnacle of creation. We as human beings, male and female. Then you arrive at chapter 2, and now chapter 2 narrows in on the creation of the human beings, and a little more drama is added to the mix because you discover that one was created first. So you have Adam created first. He's invited by God into a partnership in the creation story. He's invited to participate by naming the animals. And so in in Genesis 2, we see this. So he, meaning Adam, gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, all the wild animals. And so you can imagine this. Again, this is a story. This is a narrative. This is a poetic image. Uh, you can, so imagine Adam, you know, they're coming to him, you know, you, okay, aardvark, yep, yep, armadillo, yep, yep, baboon, right? They're going by. He begins to notice that there's two of them. They're more like each other than they are like any of the others, and yet they're a little bit different. They're complementary, and it caused him, again, this dramatic sense to look around and say, where's mine? God, where's mine? Where's my compliment? There was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. The Lord God made a woman from the rib, brought her to the man. At last the man exclaimed, This one is like me. This is my compliment. Calls her woman because she came out of the man. But notice how he made a, co- he made a compliment, not a copy. He made a compliment, not a copy. And this explains, the fact there is a man and a woman explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. This is the foundational statement in the Bible about marriage. Because there's a male, because there's a female, it explains the complementary and how they partner with God and reflect something of God to all creation. That's the biblical narrative. God's image is displayed through humans, male and female. God could have created androgynous humans where there's just one type, He could have created dozens, hundreds, thousands of different genders. There's something uniquely important about male and female. So that's, I think, the first thing we need to understand when it comes to the topic of gender in the Bible is that the Bible introduces humanity as a male-female binary with no distinction between sex and gender. In other words, there's no confusion between what my body says and what my mind says. Now, tragically, we learn in Genesis 3 that the first humans, the male and the female, gave in to sin, and everything God created was corrupted by sin. And the rest of the Bible addresses how broken people continually rebel against God's order and how God is restoring that order through Jesus. We are all broken people, but that doesn't take away from God's original design and intention for us. And we see this in how Jesus responded to a particular issue that came to him from some religious leaders 
they had a cultural question that he was addressing. It's found in Matthew chapter 19. So we have these religious leaders. These, really, there is no distinction between religious leaders and cultural leaders because the culture was what's called theistic. You know, believe, you know, so, so, it's, so the religious leaders were coming to him. They tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for any reason? We need to understand this is a cultural question coming to Jesus. Help us interpret the culture that was read that's here. Jesus replies, haven't you read the scriptures? So he takes the turns them from the cultures to the scripture. Because if you're a culture under God, then you're going to look to the scriptures for truth. Have you looked there? Where it says, from the beginning, back in the original design, God made them male and female. Which I find fascinating. It's a question about divorce, and he starts with male and female. This, because that explains marriage. Why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Male and female explains marriage. Then he adds this, since they are no longer two but one, let no one split what God has joined together. Again, we get this picture of God's design. So maleness and femaleness are written into the fabric of the universe, each equally valuable and important as a complementary pair. So of course a man can't divorce his wife for any reason. She's far more too valuable for that. Of course, there's more going on in marriage than just your marriage. Of course, you're not going to do that. God was the one that brought you together. Basically telling them and telling us, you don't get to define marriage. You don't get to define gender. God created humanity for his good purposes. And then you notice what comes next. The religious leaders don't go, oh, thank you, Jesus. No, they double down. They double down, and they turn to their law. But what about our laws? Our laws say, what about did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away? Our laws don't seem to line up with this. Once again, Jesus turns to the Scriptures and basically contrasts what the Scriptures say. He says, Moses permitted divorce. You see the difference there? Didn't design divorce. God permitted divorce is only a concession to your hard hearts it was not what god had originally intended and then he adds something extra again i tell you this whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful they responded to the question about law and culture and he nips it he says law culture is always beholden to creation to the original design now, some people are fond of saying, you know, there's a difference between the New Testament and the Old Testament. You know, the Old Testament, you have all those laws, and you have this angry God, and then Jesus arrives in the scene, and he's about love, and, and he's about acceptance, and none of, you don't have to worry about the Old Testament laws and things like that. Did you notice that's not what you see here? Like in Matthew chapter 5 is another example. Jesus doesn't widen it. He narrows the definition by removing cultural exceptions. Did you catch that? And we can see this in the fact that in the way that Jesus' own disciples responded to how much he narrowed it. They responded by saying, if this is the case, it's better not to marry. And anybody who's been married longer than, say, five minutes says, yeah, that's hard. It's good, but it's hard. Jesus doesn't make, say, oh, let me, let, let me make this easy for you. No. And then Jesus' response again affirms what's going on here. He responds to his disciples by saying, not everyone can accept this statement. The statement is, it's better not to marry. Only those whom God helps, we are dependent creatures. Then he goes on to add this. Some are born as eunuchs, 
Some have been made eunuchs by others. Some choose not to marry, which is the New Living Translation's way of translating the original text, which I want to go back and reread this. Some are born as eunuchs. Some have been made by eunuchs by others. Some become eunuchs on their own for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. Now, the reason I wanted to highlight that is because if you don't know it, eunuchs were men with mutilated genitals. Maybe could even be called intersex today. And note, I want you to notice something else. You know the whole nature-nurture argument? You know, I was born that way, or my parents, you know, right? He bypasses that, whether by nature, whether you're born that way, whether you were made that way by nurture, by others, right? Or you choose. Jesus, in a sense, doesn't care about any of that. He's already emphasized male, female. That's what's important. Marriage, yes, got all that. But you notice what he adds. For the sake of the kingdom of heaven. This is about priority. It's about priority. Gender, sexuality, and marriage are written into the fabric of creation, but something more important is going on with gender, sexuality, and marriage. There's something more important at stake, and that's the kingdom of heaven. We are called to serve a higher purpose with our gender and sexuality. Notice also that Jesus mentions that marriage isn't the only option. In fact, this is one way I would say that we need a little bit of correction as a church culture because in a lot of ways we've overemphasized the importance of marriage as part of church culture. Not that it's a bad thing. And yet it has kind of left singles kind of on the sidelines as if they don't have a valuable role to play in the kingdom of heaven and in the church accomplishing the work of the kingdom of heaven. And that's one way we've contributed against some of the confusion on this topic. Now I could go on about that, but I need to set that aside. But I just wanted to highlight that. So the first thing we learn in the Bible is that gender is introduced in Genesis, affirmed by Jesus, human beings created as a male-female binary with no distinction between biological sex and gender. The second thing we see in the Bible is that the Bible prohibits crossing gender boundaries. And we see this in two ways. One in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, where you see this. A woman must not put on men's clothing. A man must not wear women's clothing. Anyone who does this is detestable in the sight of the Lord your God. Now, if you weren't here last week, that phrase, detestable in the sight of the Lord your God, I mean, that grinds, doesn't it? That's hard to see. Now, we need to know where we are in the Bible. You're in the law, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, which lists so many things that don't measure up to the perfection of God that when you're finished reading them, every single person here should come to the same conclusion. I'm guilty. Now, this would be one of the ways I'd be guilty, but I'm guilty. There's no room for condemnation of anybody else. You need to know where we are in the Bible. The purpose of the moral law is to expose sin in its many forms, reveal guilt of every human, and to remind us of how much every one of us needs a Savior. So that's all I want to say this week. If you weren't here last week, please go. I treated that a little more, with a little more length last week. So this law is in Deuteronomy. What you see here is reflected in one other place. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, that's a long passage. It's a complex passage. I don't, wanna, I don't have time today. I invite you to read it on your own. But what is, what in, in the first Corinthians, Paul is writing to this church in Corinth. They live in a chaotic culture where there are no rules and boundaries and everybody do as you please, kind of like ours. People are coming to Christ out of that culture. They're coming into the church and bringing the chaos with them. And so the letter of 1 Corinthians is Paul saying, come on, everybody stay in your place here. There are lines here. You know, that God has an order for all of this. In chapter 11, he's addressing what we might look at as cultural expressions of gender differences in worship, in corporate worship. You'll see that he basically says women 
worship like this. Men, worship like this. And the point I want to make is there's a gender distinction. And when he goes to explain it in terms of the order, where does he go? But to Genesis chapter 2. The same idea. Now you need to know, those are the only two passages that, that, that directly ex- hit on this idea of gender differences. Both of them deal with gender expression, but I hope you see that there's more going on than gender expression. And I also want to just want to emphasize that any thoughtful reading of the Bible, even though there's only two passages that directly address it, any thoughtful reading of the Bible should lead to the conclusion that biological females are expected to identify and express themselves as women. And biological males are expected to identify and express themselves as men. But even saying that, if all right now you kind of went, yes, the men just need to act like men and the women just need to act like women like the Bible says, my friends, here is an opportunity for us to actually receive truth from culture and be humble enough to receive some correction. Because we in the church often present culturally bound images of what it means to be a man and a woman. You know, like men who grunt and who avoid emotions and believe in the Trinity. Football, Harleys, hunting. (laughs) Women who are sweet and sensitive, quiet and deferential. Not that those are bad things, just narrow. And when we take those images and we apply carefully selected Bible passages, often pulled out of context, what we do is we end up presenting expressions of masculinity and femininity that are narrow, narrower than what the whole of the Bible presents to us. For example, just to give you a couple pictures we have in the Bible. In the Exodus story, we see two men, Bezalel and Oholiab, who are gifted by God to cut stones and carve wood, and you think, yeah, and to make artistic designs and to sew finely woven garments. Oh, wait a minute, right? And what do we make of that picture of femininity offered in the book of Judges when Deborah led Israel to war and when Jael drove a tent peg through Sisera's head? You go, girl. We have David, the preeminent man in the Old Testament who was a warrior famous for killing Goliath and defeating Israel's enemies at war and who also wrote poetry, played the harp, and wept openly in public. (laughs) Thank you for that. (laughs) And that pinnacle of femininity, the Proverbs 31 woman, when you've heard that taught, maybe... Her to overlook the fact that she was a small business owner providing for her family? We have Jesus, and we cheer his masculine strength, courage, and boldness when he angrily turned over tables in the temple. Yeah? What about in the same chapter where he wept over Jerusalem and said he wanted to gather his people like a mother hen gathering her chicks? The biblical descriptions of what it means to be a man and a woman are much broader than we may realize. So to sum up, the Bible absolutely provides boundaries for gender, sexuality, and marriage, and all the boundaries are for our good and God's glory. But they are wide boundaries. Yes, God made them humans, male and female. That's a boundary. But how you express your maleness and femaleness is wide. There's a myriad ways we could express it. 
Just don't cross over and believe that you are another gender or express yourself as another gender. We have great freedom when it comes to marriage. I mean, think about it. You can marry any other adult of the opposite sex that it, in the planet today. That's like, what, three billion options? Why boundaries? But just like Adam and Eve who were told, you can eat from any tree in the garden except this one. Freedom within wide boundaries just isn't enough. When it comes to gender identity, the issue is not new to our day. I mean, we spent a couple of months at the beginning of the year going through Ecclesiastes, and you can hear the whisper, there's nothing new under the sun. The issue when it comes to gender is an issue of sovereignty. Who gets to decide? We live in the age of the sovereign self. That's the core of the new cultural narrative. When it comes to discovering who you really are, whether you're talking about gender or anything else, the culture asks, who do you think you are? Who does your internal sense of self tell you you are? In other words, you declare your identity rather than discovering your identity. Your thoughts and words take priority over your biology. Ultimately, you can put it this way, You speak yourself into existence. And that should cause us to pause. Who speaks you into existence? Who formed you in your mother's womb? When I declare myself something other than what God declared me as, I'm basically telling God, I know better. Please hear me. In no way do I want to minimize the struggle that many experience on this issue. Gender dysphoria is real. The desire to cross gender boundaries is real. And it's often very painful, like we heard from Brandon. We all struggle. This idea of gender dysphoria is one struggle among many as we live in a broken world with fallen, broken bodies and minds. And this is where Jesus' invitation is the same to all of us. When he makes his basic invitation, he says, if any of you wants to be my follower, give up your own way, take up your cross, which involves suffering, and follow me. If you try to cling to your life, hang on to it the way you think it ought to be, you're just going to lose it. But if you're willing to give up your life for my sake, for Jesus' sake, for the sake of the good news, the gospel, you'll save it. Jesus' invitation is always to life, but it's always through death, through self-denial first. And this is where I find C.S. Lewis's commentary so helpful in his, in his essay called Weight of Glory. He said, The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised to us in the Gospels, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Transgender longings are one way we struggle with our desires. And if that's you today, without diminishing or demeaning or condemning your struggle, I invite you, as I invite myself, as I invite everybody else in the room here, 
Take your desires to Jesus. Go after the unblushing promises and staggering rewards that he offers. Now, I realize that's a lot to absorb. So a couple things I want to emphasize before I close. First of all, if you are here today, that does not make you now an expert on gender identity. Just want to be clear on that. Please don't leave here with that in mind. Please, please, please don't leave here and say, my pastor said. Okay. This is a fluid. It's changing. The ground is moving. Let's approach this topic and, the, and, and people who are in, this, are in this world with a humble learning posture. I wanted to, to help you with that. That's why I provided some, a resource list, some websites, some books, some, some videos you can watch. It's in your sermon notes. Be sure to grab those on the way out if you didn't grab one on the way in. It's why we're collecting questions. If you still have questions about gender, sexuality, use your Connect card, write your questions there. Pastor James and I are collecting them. We're going to have a couple of Q&A forums the next two Sunday evenings. Uh, here in the, it's in the dining hall to, to kind of go a little more in-depth on some of these. We want to hear from you, so please... Ask your questions we want. That's the first thing. We are not now experts. Let's approach this with a humble learning posture. The second thing, we have absolutely no room for condemnation on this topic. Every single person deserves our respect because they are made in the image of God. Whether we like what they believe or not, whether we like what they do or not, every single person is unique and it reflects something of God and has value and deserves our respect. That doesn't mean we deny our biblical convictions. It means that we are willing to engage in dialogue, gracefully speak truth to culture, humbly receive truth from culture. It's about dialogue. You know, in the last few years, I've learned a lot of, about this topic of gender from one of my heroes. Her name is Hannah, and she's my daughter. She turned 19 yesterday. When she was 15, her lifelong best friend declared herself non-binary and then began a transitioning to living life as a boy. This caused Hannah tremendous heartbreak. She loved her friend, and yet this meant that she lost something of an intimate sisterhood. She also felt really conflicted because on the one hand, she wanted to grieve, but then she felt guilty for grieving. She, she, she wanted to, she, she, she wanted, felt a, a sense of being betrayed, and yet she felt guilty for being betrayed. I mean, aren't, isn't the cultural message that we're supposed to celebrate this? You know, a person's making their decision, so celebrate their decision as if it has no impact on us. Now, I'm so proud of her. She navigated that relationship and maintained it over the last several years, maintains that while at the same time it led to her own internal struggle because she grew up mostly liking things that are boy things. Boy things, we can put it that way, right? She has two older brothers. She found great joy and pleasure in getting in her brother's shadow and doing what they were doing and their friends were doing. So now the question comes up, does that mean I'm a boy? One of the times we were having a conversation, she she told me she was questioning if she was cisgender. And I said, excuse me? She goes, I'm questioning whether I'm cisgender. And I had to ask her, what does that mean? I mean, these terms, like, they're coming up like crazy, right? 
Cisgender, if you don't know, means that, that your sense of gender identity matches your biological sex. What, it has, what that word does is it deconstructs the normality of the male-female binary. And you know what? When I heard that, I got angry. I got very angry. I mean, doesn't a teenager have enough angst and enough things to worry about without wondering what gender they are? But my anger didn't do my daughter any good. So God and I, we had a lot of conversations about that. Now, over the next couple of years, gender conversations mostly took a backseat in our relationship as she finished out high school. And last summer, she graduated high school. And then over the summer, she began getting ready to move to Spokane to begin college life. And one day, we had the opportunity to sit down and have a long, deep conversation about gender and sexuality. And, and what I learned from her was just this deep compassion that she has shaped me by now. And that is this compassion for those that struggle in this area. She also, you know, talked about how she's come to terms with herself as female and now is trying to figure out what does femininity going to look like for her. She's not really frilly or lacy, and she doesn't necessarily like to wear dresses or makeup most of the time. But I will tell you this. She expresses, she expresses femininity, the beauty of femininity, uniquely because she reflects something uniquely of God. And she's my hero. You know, this coming Saturday, there's a pride event that's going to happen about three blocks that way, right? You've probably seen the sign across from our church. Some of you are excited about that. Some of you are deeply disturbed by that. What I would love for us to leave here today with is agreeing on one thing. Those that are going to go to that, those people, are our neighbors. And let us not forget that Jesus spent so much time with people that the religious people of the day, the good church-going folk, looked down upon for their behaviors, that he was accused by them of being a drunkard, being a glutton. He was derogatorily called a friend of sinners. And I can't help but think, this is just my opinion, that if Jesus were here today, he would lead us, if we were going to follow him, he would lead us to that event, not away from it. And as we went with him, he would have us make friends, not be there to make a point. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Jesus, for your love for us. Thank you for the love that transcends these issues that we are dealing with today. Yes, you have created this universe. Yes, you have a design in mind. It's a good design. We also understand you've given us freedom, which has led to sin, which means we wrestle. Would we wrestle honestly and gracefully, individually as well as together? And this morning, I just, I just want to invite anyone who's here that this is your story we touched on. Maybe this is your internal struggle. Please hear Jesus' words. It's found in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's Jesus' invitation. And maybe you've never received that invitation at all, and you know today you're guilty here, you're, you're struggling, and you need to know that there's a Savior who loves you. And all who come to him, he welcomes. You come humbly, you say, I know I fall short, I know I can't measure up. I need your help. I need a Savior. 
and he receives you and invites you into his family, no matter where you come from, no matter what you're doing. And for all of us today, would we be the hands and feet of Jesus and welcome all who come? So we submit this to you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.